What's up, bitch? Welcome back to your own fucking podcast, bitch. All right, we're back. Yeah. Season two, officially, we're calling it season two. All right. Why not? Yeah, I guess. Sounds important. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it matters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it sort of matters. Yeah. yeah so we bit. did 27, 28 episodes. Yeah, on the first one. Yeah. So now, you know, fresh start a little bit. Yeah. Get a little we're really late in the game. I know. I mean, when was I the got, last? When was the last episode? Like six months. Six months ago? Yeah. No. Yes. Really, March? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went a whole year uninterrupted. Yes. And, and then, then season two is like the just Rona weird. Hit. Yeah, Rona. And then we did we did record uh, the, le- the the one that we're about to um, the conversation that we're about to upload right now, uh-huh. which is Rekabas who we're gonna talk about her, but we we recorded it and then. I came here on a Tuesday, and then on Friday I tested positive yeah. <laughs> for coronavirus. So well, you did have a party at your house. No, I did. <laughs> yeah, you did. It was no, it yeah, was you not. Did. Yeah, you it, did. No. You fucker. I even like I remember talking shit about you. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> my girl's like, "Look at this fucking idiot no. throwing a party at his house." Nope, wrong. Yeah, you did. I didn't yeah, throw did. a party. Well, whatever. It was a distancing. <laughs> it was a distancing uh, backyard. Uh, oh, okay. Drive yeah. by, actually. Oh, okay. Drive by. Anyways, okay. <laughs> so I I got the vi- I got the virus, uh-huh. and um, I went down, but now I'm back, and we're back. So this next guest is Rekha Basu. She's an award-winning, decorated, very respected journalist here for the Des Moines Register. So I'm always thankful to my guest for making time for me and obviously she's no exception so we just went i mean she's a columnist so she you know writes a column every three days i think i mean you know oh nice so yeah very very, i very active um that'd be uh, hard man to yeah put out shit like you know yes i don't know to write something that's fresh you know every three days or so yeah that's pretty hard so um she's uh uh she has a great story, great background. I mean, I'll just you know we go um, through why she, how she ended up uh, in in Iowa, and um, uh, then we go through the ringer on topics, current events, and stuff like that. So that's why I'm excited because we're coming back with like a big, big guest. So yeah, what what have you been up to? What's what's your deal what's my deal yeah no deal i've been uh <laughs> my a, deal a, is no a, deal it's my deal is no deal i've been on a great great vacation yeah i feel like uh, maybe you gave me the virus because you um, work at a you're a dj so you work out at bars oh so we're doing this shit on the fucking episode huh? okay <laughs> that's cool like, <laughs> so we're doing this so we're playing the blame game. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I don't, I don't have. Maybe COVID. you, maybe you're the asymptomatic person, and you've got nothing. And then you know, maybe you're just dirty about that. <laughs> maybe you're just a very dirty person. <laughs> maybe, yeah. See, uh, what the fuck, dude? Why are you bringing that shit to my house? Anyways, I think uh, it's it. It feels right. To come back right now. I like how you try to change the subject. <laughs> no, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to get to the guest. Um, 
So thank you to Rekha Basu. We're going to actually break this uh, conversation into two. Uh, so this is, what do you call it? What, uh, part one? Yeah, part, yeah, you break it Part out. one yeah, with Rekha Basu and then... And then we'll do um... uh, part two. <laughs> I don't know. That's my guess. <laughs> yes. Part Did I two. get it? Did I get it? Yeah, oh, okay. you got wow, it. Wow, man. So um, great conversation because it's so, so good. We had to keep everything. So anyways, thank you, everybody, for joining us back on the Amner Martinez podcast with my homie. <laughs> <laughs> this song is dope. Okay, I think we're we're on now. So, um, so first of all, let me start off by saying I was just telling Ben. I'm like, he's like, is it hot in here? And I'm like, no, man, I'm just nervous. Oh no, you don't have to be <laughs> nervous with me. I'm like, you know, she's journalist and author, and oh, you know, uh, so um, a woman of the people. Of the people, yes. So, um, so yeah, the, you know, journalism is. Is something that I respect, and so that's why the nerves. Oh, so. well, I'm delighted to meet you, and I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast. Thank you. So, um, doing a little bit of research, I, I was like, I can do a podcast with her on 10 different issues. Each podcast can be one, you know, so. <laughs> I doubt it. We're we gonna probably run out of interesting material <laughs> pretty quickly. We're going to try, I'm going to try to condense as much as possible in like the next 45 minutes or an hour or so, but, um, you're f- you were born in India. I was born in India um, to Indian parents, mm-hmm. and we were actually just they were just living in India temporarily during the time that I was born because they were both assigned long term to New York with their United Nations jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, actually, before I was ten years old, I had lived in a number of different countries, including Libya, Egypt, India, Thailand. And, of course, New York, which is mm-hmm. where most of my upbringing was done. Yeah. So the, and when I was reading that, it said United Nations parents, that they were employed by the United Nations. Yes. They were employed by the U.N. Secretariat, so they were not representatives of the Indian government. They were oh, actually okay. staff professionals at the U.N. Okay. So they met in New York. It was an interesting story, actually. Um, They came from different parts of India. My father was a Bengali from Calcutta. My Uh mother was a Punjabi, a Sikh from New Delhi. Uh And she, you know, both of them kind of escaped the traditional marriage trajectory where you have arranged marriages that are set up by your parents. They both wanted to get a further education and global experience. Mm -hmm. So my mother got herself, and this was in 1947, got um, a full fellowship to Yale Law School, Mm -hmm. and she came to the U.S. and attended Yale, got her law degree, and then went to work in the United Nations in New York. My father kind of took a boat to, he came from a more working class family than my mother, Mm -hmm. um, got himself on a boat, got to London, then got to the U.S., did his education, and he also found his way to the United Nations, and they met in the first class of U.N. interns. Mm -hmm. And actually, the United Nations has a policy, an anti-nepotism policy, of not allowing people to be married who are working there. But because they met and then got married there, um, it was okay. Yeah. So they both oh, spent okay. 40 year careers at the UN. And I, my sister and I grew up in New York and we went to the United Nations International School in New York. 
Now, I know this question doesn't come um, because I love Des Moines. Love Iowa. Like, I've been here since 95. I think it's got, it's exciting to be here. Mm-hmm. And, but um, with that global, you know, international background, how did, how did you I end, end up, up in, in Des, Moines? Des Moines? In the most positive way, right? Like, I, yes. I love Des Moines. But. It's a very good question, and I get asked that a right. lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was a journalist. I was working in upstate New York mm-hmm. um, as an editorial writer. And I was ready for a larger newspaper. And I went to a national conference of editorial writers um, and met the editorial page editor of the Des Moines Register. And it was the same year that the Register had won a Pulitzer Prize for a series of columns about rape. Okay. Um, And this was provoked by the editor, one of the few female newspaper editors at the time. Her name is Geneva Overholzer. Mm -hmm. She had written a column saying, you know, we observe this tradition of not naming rape victims, rape survivors in our newspapers because of the stigma about having been raped. Okay. So we don't usually, we'll give the names of the um, alleged perpetrators, but we don't give the names of the victims. Mm Mm-hmm. And she said, just for a change, I would really invite someone who has been a victim of rape to come forward and identify herself by name and share her story to try to debunk the stigma that resides on women rather than men Mm -hmm. for having done this, right? Mm -hmm. And so a woman came forward. She had been a survivor of rape, and she was awaiting... um, her perpetrator's case to go to trial, and it did. And one of our very new columnists wrote a series of columns about it that appeared on the front page, and they won the Pulitzer Prize for um, public interest mm-hmm. and public service, rather. And so I was looking for a larger paper to move to, not necessarily in the Midwest, but I really admired this paper for what it had done and mm, this editor okay. for being really progressive. You know, she was one of these people who said, you go into journalism to change the world. That yeah. was her agenda. And that was my agenda. Yeah. And so um, I, the next year they had, and, you know, the, the editorial page editor who I met told me a lot about the positions that they had taken on various issues, global, national, local. Mm-hmm. And I supported most of them. They were very progressive, I thought. So I thought, if I'm going to work for a larger paper, it has to be one where I see eye to eye with Mm -hmm. the vision of the paper. Because as an editorial writer, you have to represent their institutional viewpoints. You can't write your own, right? Right. Now I'm a columnist. I write my own. Mm -hmm. Um, But at that time, there were just a few that I thought really aligned with my own philosophies about things. The problem was that the newspaper was in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> and I was It sounds very, amazing, but it's right, in Des Moines. In Des Moines. And I had never been to the Midwest. And I this never, is like 90... This was in 91, okay. 1991. And I hadn't even been to Chicago. I had been to the West Coast. Um, I had grown up on the East Coast, but mm-hmm. I knew nothing about the Midwest. Okay. And at the time, I had two little children. One was under two years old, still breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. and the other was in kindergarten. And my husband had a really good job as a newspaper manager, news manager for a competing newspaper than mine. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to come to Des Moines, which threw our family into complete chaos, because what were we going to do with these kids and this husband's job and all of that? But we agreed, because he was very supportive of my career, that mm-hmm. if it was important enough, I should go and, um, you know, go for the job interview, go for the job, um, and that we would try to make things work. He would try to get a job out here as well, mm-hmm. and we would just work it out somehow. Right, right. 
So that's what yeah, we did. Yeah, at that time, uh, Des Moines wasn't what it is now. No, not at I mean, all. Uh, not at all. And uh, it wasn't as vibrant as, you know. Yes, um, it was quite monocultural at mm-hmm. the time. There were not that many immigrants, certainly mm-hmm. not that many from India. And in general, you know, minority communities were really not seen or heard from in the mainstream newspaper that much. Mm-hmm. So one of my missions was very quickly to get to know people here who were movers and shakers within their communities mm-hmm. and write more about them, give, give different communities face and representation. Um, so I moved out here, and I was here for 10 months when, with one with the baby, and then the other baby came a few months after, a month after I got here, and then eventually... My husband and I decided, you know, he better just quit his job and <laughs> move here too. Okay, so you guys liked it. So we did, and in fact, you know, there came a time ten years down the line where I was. We were both offered columnist. He became eventually a columnist at the Des Moines Register as well. Mm-hmm. He started out in in local television here, um, and he was a publisher or the editor of the Business Record for a while. But business was not his thing; it was just a makeshift position and. Mm-hmm. We just both came to really love it, but we always thought we were here temporarily. We were not Iowans. We were not going to raise our kids. Everybody's uh, plan at some point, right? Like just a few years. Right. That's what my parents said. They moved here for because um, of a meatpacking plan in '95. Really. And we were in California, and they're like two years, and then we come back, and you the know, the rest is history. 25, 30 years later, we're, you know, but we love how, it here. How long did they work for the plant? My dad still works there. Really, so 25 is, years later? My dad is 70, oh, 72, 73. Oh he still goodness. works. My mom retired like 10, 15 years ago, but my dad is a workaholic. So is he? Yeah, we were just uh, telling him to slow down, and he just looked at us and said, why are you making me stop doing what I love doing? So then we you know, shut our mouth. So. He loves it. So where is the plant? It's in Perry. Okay, so he has yeah. to commute every day. No, no, no. He lives in Perry. We moved extri- directly from California to Perry. We didn't even stop in Des Moines. Perry's oh. like a seven thousand um, population, seven to ten thousand. I or know Perry quite well, actually, mm-hmm. because a good friend of mine used to be the mayor there, and mm-hmm. so we used to spend every okay. summer hanging out with her for a long weekend. A bunch of women friends and yeah. I would go. She had a swimming pool, and we would swim, and we got to know the community quite well. Yeah. Beautiful Mexican. Yeah, it's our uh, it's our adopted. Uh, home I guess you know we've been here in Iowa in Perry more than we've ever been anywhere else you really? know in our life so but I wanted to ask you so you um write um polit- about politics culture human rights social justice yes gender gender yes. um so is that um did it begin like that in in ninety or in the, when you first came here? Was that your style? Was that originally that was, what you started off with? That was what I was always interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came, as I mentioned, I came as an editorial writer. Mm-hmm. So every day we would go through what had happened in the news that day, and then we would divide up which of there were five of us, I think, editorial writers at the time, and we would decide what was comment worthy and then who mm-hmm. should do it and. I quickly found a space um, as the person who wrote about minority issues, about gender and social justice issues, because that was what I cared about. Mm -hmm. And I also started contributing 
once a week um, signed opinion pieces. And um, my editors liked that, and so they asked me eventually if I was interested in developing that into a full-time columnist job, okay. which, which was manna from heaven, because you don't get offered those jobs. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. And there's no clear path to, to work your way towards them. Mm-hmm. I think I just was such an anomaly here. I came from so many different places, yeah. and they were interested in an outsider's perspective. Your lens. Right. Mm-hmm. But it was very open-minded of the paper, I have to say, and this is one of the things I loved about this paper. It was very open-minded that they didn't think that you had to have been living here for years and years to have earned the right to mm-hmm. comment about the way Iowans do things. You know, they liked a fresh yeah. perspective. And um, not all the readers did, though. I actually <laughs> got a lot of hate mail. I yeah. still have boxes <laughs> and boxes of letters that yeah. are labeled hate mail. And I don't know why I keep them, but I yeah. think in some way it's like a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah. You know, that I that I I made people charged up enough, fired up up enough to actually sit down and write a letter to the editor. Yeah. Not many people even read You provoked a thought out of them. <laughs> exactly. And that I didn't want to leave people neutral, you know, whether mm-hmm. they love it or hate it, it was better than just yeah. being uh eh, turn the page. So, you know, I sometimes I think if people react very strongly there's a problem there mm-hmm. that, you know, this challenges everything they've ever thought of and it's forcing them maybe mm-hmm. to rethink things at some level. Yeah. So um, so that was fine. But then there's also a lot of gendered hate mail where people just, you know, would say yeah. horribly sexist things because I think this has been a concerted effort over the decades as women have become more visible on opinion pages to try to silence them. Have you seen an evolution of that hate mail or is it just kind of the same you know, kind of hate? I have to say this, Amner, I've seen it get worse. I've Run? really okay. seen it get worse wow. over the years. And I've seen a lot of women who started out on opinion pages being driven out of, out it, of it because they just couldn't handle it anymore. Yeah. And the reason it's gotten worse is because of social media. Mm-hmm. When I first came, we didn't have the internet and so we didn't have social media where, you know, people would just berate you online for everybody else to see. My my hate letters, as horrible as they were, were sent to me privately. Mm-hmm. So I read them, but nobody else saw them. But then this is this idea of being kind of publicly shamed mm-hmm. and taken apart for something that you've written is, I think, for some people, very hard to take. Yeah. And I've, I've gotten very used to it. I've developed a very thick skin. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people, it's just, it's it's devastating mm-hmm. to be, you know, publicly berated that way. They don't right. want it. They, it's not worth all the money in the world. Yeah, my them. job is making, creating enemies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, like, mine always has, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, the thing that helps one is that you also get fan mail. And mm-hmm. mostly, for me, it's a minority of people who have felt underrepresented, mm-hmm. who felt like they never were given voice in right. a newspaper in Des Moines, Iowa, and they hadn't quite put things together in terms of a a structure of racism or deliberate kind of sexism Mm -hmm. um, and started reading the columns and seeing that there were patterns here Mm -hmm. and histories here and that, you know, they shouldn't feel they were doing anything wrong if they weren't getting further along in their careers, that there was an institutional prejudice against them. And I think a lot of a lot of people you mentioned representation. A lot of people underestimate the power of representation. Yes. I would probably say white Caucasian people don't understand when when you say representation and the 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 uh, impact that creates in in you. 
Yes. Uh, it's underestimated a little bit. So It really is. And I'll tell you an example of that. Um, mm. When Kamala Harris was named to be Joe Biden's running mate, yes. I had friends from all over just write me and tell me how emotional they felt mm-hmm. about it. Because, yeah. first of all, to see an Indian American at that level and mm. then to see someone who looked like them, an African American, a woman, it was just such a turning point yeah. politically. And how did you feel? I, you know, initially I had mixed feelings about it. Mm-hmm. I was looking for someone really progressive. Um, and Kamala had sort of positioned herself as a centrist. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think she's brilliant. I think she's incredibly smart. She's very personable. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I liked her. I spent time with her one-on-one. And I thought she was a very caring person. And in fact, when in November, my mother died in India. And I was in India. And she sent me a personal text message all about my mother. She had looked her up. She had read oh. about her. She talked about what a transformational career she had as a woman and okay. you know so just a really compassionate and caring person yeah i was also a bit afraid that the indian american side of her would detract for our, some communities from her african american side that they mm-hmm. wouldn't think she was genuinely african american which is what you know some uh you know uh, pundits are doing right they're right they're questioning it and they're saying is she black enough or exactly Exactly. What about the representation part? How did you feel? Or do you look at it just through a journalist's point of view? Like her, because you said that your friends called you and said how emotional they felt when they saw that. I how felt emotional feel? too. Oh my gosh. I, my son and his girlfriend, who is also Indian, and I were sitting and watching this and we all just jumped up and down and we surprised yeah, ourselves. We didn't amazing, think right? we would have that yeah. reaction. It was just very visceral. Yes. It just I'll tell me. you this. Mine, and it's because this just happened of like two, three years ago when the movie Coco came out. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's been other movies with Hispanics, Lat- Latinos on it, right? Mm-hmm. That you feel like, oh, that's that movie is, you know, it speaks to me like La Bamba and you know all the yeah. Edward James Olmos movies. And but when I saw that movie, I I felt that representation that everybody was talking about. Really, and I, was like, I haven't Fine. seen the film. You should see it. It's it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's like colorful and just you know the story's great. I mean, it's it's a amazingly made. Wow. But um, but I felt that that what everybody spoke about that representation I was like this is what it is then because mm-hmm. I did feel like okay now now I'm seeing myself in in uh, mm-hmm. in my uh, in some of the the um, uh, traditions and just people and the, how we how we actually how we talk the character talks like how we talk you know not mm-hmm. just in an accent but like mm-hmm. in Spanglish and it's just I felt that too so I know I know that feeling and I and and I think that people that don't experience that don't understand it when you're like, you know, representation matters, right? Yes. And, you know, I would say, Amner, I think it's especially significant for people like you and me who grew up so far away from our homelands, mm-hmm. right? Our native homelands. Right. Because we don't see our people in office, in high office. Whereas mm-hmm. if we were there, we would see that every day. That's pro forma, you know. Mm-hmm. But when it happens in the U.S., in the Midwest, then you really feel like a milestone has been crossed. You know, mm-hmm. that your people are getting ahead. Yes. There is a future yeah. for your community here. Yeah. And that's really significant, I think. Yes. So there's a lot of that I want to squeeze in, but okay. I wanted to learn a little from you. Uh-huh. So um, 
I saw that you interviewed a gentleman. He had a, um, it was about masculinity and tux, oh, toxic yes. masculinity. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and you, pref- uh, you started the interview by saying um, you had an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, by saying, you know, anything that I ask you, don't take it personal. This is just <laughs> provoking. <laughs> Which I think a lot, a lot of people can, you know, I want to learn from this because I'm struggling with this sometimes. So I've interviewed people that, you know, it's easy because we kind of are like-minded people and we kind of agree on some stuff. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I want to get to a point to interview somebody that I disagree with. Yes. But I'm still very emotional about it. So how do you approach uh, an interview when you um, subject, you know that you're going to likely disagree? And what's your technique? So- so first of all, I would say about that particular interview, and I think what you're talking about, we were on stage at the historical building. I there believe was a so. panel. I was interviewing him. Yeah. I had actually met this person, I think, the night before at a reception, and mm-hmm. or maybe it was just that evening. But we had various things in common. We both had connections to Amherst, Massachusetts, and we had both been educated in some similar place. A very nice person. Okay. So we had already kind of established a little bit of a rapport. Okay. So I felt comfortable challenging him. Yeah. And I think it's always, one thing is it's always good to spend a few minutes at least with the person you're going to be interviewing to mm-hmm. establish a camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, this is going to sound... Pollyanna-ish, but I really think any two people can find points of connection, regardless of what the background is. That there are some things, whether it's bringing up children or whether it's, you know, climate or food or whatever, and that once you've established a little bit of a relationship of trust and a sense of humor where you can banter between you, Mm -hmm. that it's just much easier to pose those tough questions Mm -hmm. and work through them together, examine, analyze them together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me about a time when you have had a difficulty with that. So mostly it's been um, online. So online is where you get caught, right? If you get caught on a Facebook page, uh, argument, you know, it's going to ruin your day. And it has ruined a couple of my dates. And recently, too, in the last few weeks, mm-hmm. it's where, you know, you go and then you, I don't know, I guess the instinct of not wanting to be wrong or just wanting to make a point or maybe educate people or whatever it is, but it it, it absorbs all your energy. And then um, it never ends well. Yes, <laughs> your yes. day is ruined. Um, and I want to make that leap from or that that shift or transition from from uh, that into having an actual conversation with someone mm-hmm. that, you know, some commonality. But I guess probably f- the Internet is not the best place to do it in the yeah, first place. Yeah, you mean place, when so. you post a comment and someone responds to it? Mm-hmm, yeah. That's a very difficult forum in which to have those mm-hmm. conversations. First of all, because everybody's watching, and so you're kind of playing to an audience. Yeah. You're playing to your audience, and mm-hmm. he's playing to his audience. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a lot of truth that's allowed to be spoken mm-hmm. in that venue. If it's someone who I think um, might have some little bit of merit or who you think is intelligent but misguided, mm-hmm. try to take it out of that forum and talk privately on yeah. the phone or something. Because yeah. if the goal is to reach common ground, I think it can be done much more effectively mm-hmm. without the scrutiny of people with agendas one side yeah. or the other. I guess I haven't interviewed somebody on the podcast but I want to. Mm-hmm. That's that's. Uh, I want to take that as a challenge to be like. I know I can do this. I just have to. You know. 
I guess it's just I'm entering it with I'm already disagreeing with this person, so I'm going to force my. Uh, and I think we're all doing that in a way, right? And that's how the country feels right now. It's just like I'm Polarized. right, right? I'm, I'm right, right, and you're, right. you're wrong. And yeah. then you can't change me. Instead of trying to work into trying to find some kind of common ground. Yeah. Um, I also think, quite frankly, that the anonymity of the Internet allows a lot of hate mongers to just get mm. online and, you know, get away with saying really horrible stuff that they wouldn't say to you face to face. Mm, yeah. This was a problem that I had when they first introduced at the Des Moines Register. You know, we all were expected to get Facebook accounts and to post. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and people were allowed to post anonymous responses. Mm -hmm. And I was getting the most hateful responses because people could, could get away with saying these yeah. horrible things without, you know, having to be accountable to their neighbors or their co-workers or mm. their friends or whatever, saying misogynist and racist stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, and I kind of insisted at one point, look, because I seem to be a lightning rod for this kind of conversation, I really think it would be better if you would require them to name themselves mm. when they write to me or about me. And they agreed to do that just in my case. Mm -hmm. And everything changed. The tenor of conversation really changed when they had to be named yeah. because they were answerable. So There's trolls out yeah, there. Yeah, there are definitely old. trolls out there, and you just have to ignore them. Have you engaged? With do trolls? You, yeah. I, do you? I mean, I do try to respond to people who are in any way respectful or in any way show an interest in where I formed my opinions, mm -hmm. how I formed my okay. opinions about something. But I don't respond to people who are purely hateful. Sometimes I write back to them in snide ways and make fun of them. But I <laughs> <laughs> It's hard That's, not to write. Right? Sometimes you just feel like I, can't, I, know. Just not, I just can't leave it alone. You just can't let it get to you, though. You really can't. I mean, you have to think about... I have to tell you a, a funny story. Sure. There was a columnist by the name of Donald Call at the Register for many, many years. He was very leftist. He was a white man. Um, but very progressive, very leftist, and would take positions that people thought were outrageous about politics. And he also mm -hmm. had this great sense of humor. So he would make fun of political candidates. And, mm -hmm. you know, he would. And um, he used to get a lot of hate mail. And I remember early on in my tenure here at the Register, I wrote to him. He was based in Washington, D.C. And I said, look, Donald, I'm really having a hard time with this hate mail stuff. And yeah. how am I supposed to frame it? How do I take it? You know, how, I don't know how much more of this I can take. Mm -hmm. And he wrote back and said um, about those nasty things. He said, first of all, take what is worth it. If there's anything, if there's any criticism that actually might have a grain of truth to it, take it for what it's worth and absorb it and learn from it and grow from it. Mm -hmm. And he said, for the rest of them, just be really glad you ruined some SOB's day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, and when you think about it, you did ruin their day. Why mm -hmm. are they so hit up and cranked mm -hmm. up? Because you hit them where they're sensitive. Yeah. And so, you know, it's more painful for them than for you. Look at it. You're the lucky one. You've got the platform. Mm -hmm. You've got yeah. an audience. They don't. And so they mm -hmm. feel super frustrated. And, yeah. And know, they have to lash out. and They have to lash out arbitrarily at people. So, yeah. yeah. So, do you think that the internet, social media, has um, is part of the problem? Yes, definitely. Right? Somebody that one of the um, executive editors at the Atlantic wrote a a piece about uh, QAnon. Mm, yes. Um, um, how QAnon's impact, where it started, who is Q, and all this stuff. But 
um, and I wanted to dive a little bit into about that, what, what your thoughts are, but um, on NPR, the interviewer asked her, you know, what do you think is the problem and what do you think it's the solution? And she said, you know, it's the internet. It's just how the, inter- the internet is like the perfect tool for this kind of movement to rise to mm-hmm. where it is and, you know, the path that it's going. Mm-hmm. And she kind of says, like, the solution is just to come up with a n- brand new internet, like a new, like, so she's saying. Just silence everybody. No, take it off and then create a new internet because there's so much um, uh, that there's so many avenues, so many angles that people can get information and hide information and misinform is, uh-huh. is just become almost out of hand that even these um, companies that are regulating themselves now and kind of keeping, you know, things and deleting accounts and stuff like that, even they can't keep up with it because it's just so much. I remember it's been in my mind since I'm a little kid from in Guatemala that it was like, if you want to keep friendships, don't talk about religion, don't talk, don't talk about politics on the dinner table. Mm. And I think that we should have taken the internet as the dinner table. Mm. And we should have just not uh, yeah. <laughs> gone into this. But now yeah. it's just this. It's out of control. Everybody's just going at each other's throat. and You know, I have such mixed feelings about this topic because I think at one level the internet has been a very democratizing force, right? Mm-hmm. It gives mm-hmm. everybody a chance to have their voice heard, whereas yeah. when it was just newspapers or radio, it was only the select few who were chosen to be on the air. Yeah. Um, I also think it's played an especially useful role in social uprisings, like, mm-hmm. you know, people during the Arab Spring could turn on the internet and hear where other uprisings were taking place that they never would have learned from their own media, right? And so in that sense, they can get ideas, they can be informed, they can know this is a burgeoning movement mm-hmm. everywhere, hang in their strategies, whatever. That has been really, really helpful by connecting countries across and people across the globe. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's no editing and that's really important. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have a newspaper, you edit out stuff that is inappropriate. When you And you don't also vet, um, on the internet, you don't vet anybody's identity. They can say who they are. They can say what they think. They can claim there is factual basis for this. Mm-hmm. If you're writing an article for a newspaper, you verify their sources. Yeah. You make sure there's some grounding. Whereas people can get away with anything. And these crazy conspiracy theories now which are used as right-wing propaganda, are just not helpful. I think they confuse voters. They confu- mm. And I think that a lot of them have contributed to Trump's popularity right. in his election even. Yeah. And that's just not good. And they don't want to hear fact because they heard it on the Internet, so it must be true. Right. And they regurgitate it. Yes. So I think there just somehow has to be a better job of vetting, not censorship, mm-hmm. but just getting people's sources. Yeah. And maybe before you know letting them on the Internet finding out what their source of information is. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. they're just taking up space and putting out garbage that's harmful and destructive. Yeah, and I think some of them are doing it. Like, I think Twitter's saying that they've deleted hundreds of accounts and Facebook is putting out numbers that they've deleted, you know, a number of accounts and, you know, uh, that... The problem is they're deleting some of the wrong people's (laughs) accounts. I mean, they're deleting leftists' accounts. And I think that's what... this editor was saying that it's just kind of they can't even handle themselves the, right. this this um, monitoring or or regulation of um, 
but it's called the um the prophecies of QAnon. So ah. it's a it's an article, but then PR interviewed the editor yesterday and um yesterday, okay. Yeah, and, for that. which is um which we can get into this now is like uh it goes on what Q, who Q is mm -hmm. and what you know where it began and how it's evolved in the last few years and how it's picked up steam. Mm -hmm. And it, it has to do a lot with, you know, um taking something and making it a fact and but it's there's no sources or anything. Right. So which a lot of uh the Trump Trumpism there's a lot of that to it. So what is your thoughts on that? On, on, on this? I mean, if it's skewed toward a political end, then it's a kind of political advertising and it mm -hmm. should be labeled as such, right? Okay. It should be labeled as advertising mm -hmm. because then, you know, you don't expect fact in advertising. There's a lot of hype, yeah, a lot of mistruths that are saying, a lot of elevated claims. And I think that's what it should be used as because clearly there is an agenda. This QAnon is all about promoting Trump and claiming that all these people are out to get him and mm -hmm. he's, you know, trying to help and do good. And, I mean, frankly, it's a lot of rubbish. But I haven't spent a lot of time on QAnon. I just know most of this from my son, mm -hmm. who is a 30-something, who is who's actually 30, and lives in L.A. and is in the entertainment business. And so many young people read or follow that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mm -hmm. um, because I have enough crazy stuff. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's another... my inbox, right? It's so. another place where you... Uh, it's another air area that, you know, a lot of people are ignoring right now, but it's just been creeping more and more. It's been in my radar for the last few weeks. I'm yeah. just like, you, you, and then now it's... And somebody just won election, won a primary, yeah, right? That's a the big scary believer part. in that. That's yeah. the scary part. It's almost, um, I was comparing a little bit to the Flat Earther movement mm -hmm. where, they, uh, where they just, you know, uh, reinforce their point of view with yes. anything that they consider a YouTube video and they see it that and then they kind of reinforce that as a fact they yes they present that to you as a fact yeah um, but it's a scary it's a scary thing because now people in offices mm -hmm. are getting elected or you know possibly being in that. In, and I think part of the pushback needs to be that you know it's one thing if newspapers discredit something like QAnon because mm -hmm. that's what we would do but for, for AM radio stations to do that, for example, is very important, too, because mm -hmm. a lot of these conspiracy theories are also allowed to be spread on right-wing talk right, radio. Right, And they find a forum yeah. in those venues. So, and, I mean, even the president won't, you know, Trump won't, uh, you know, the... Disavow them. They're it. like, oh, I heard they're good people, and I heard that they uh, yeah. love America or something. He, right. He's unwilling because he knows he'll lose a lot of people if he. Well, right, exactly. I mean, he wouldn't disavow the the white supremacists who marched on Charlottesville. He said they're good people on both sides. Mm -hmm. He he still denies that climate change is is scientific, is factual. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, this this f group of people that are on the fringe of of like basically rejecting reason? Um, but rejecting media, anti-media, mm -hmm. uh, anti—you know—so um, media. What is the role that media played? Do you think on them being so just completely no trust on it? What? What? what there what is, is a perception that media is left-wing dominated, is mm -hmm. leftist dominated, is or liberal is considered a bad word, even mm -hmm. if it's just. A, and one thing that people need to learn to differentiate about newspapers, in particular, is that. 
We are the Des Moines Register is not a liberal newspaper. Mm-hmm. It has a liberal editorial page, but mm-hmm. that's very separate from a news division. Okay. But they assume that if you read editorials endorsing a Democratic candidate in the paper, that the whole paper is liberal, yes. infiltrated, okay. and biased. Mm-hmm. That everybody working there, all the reporters have an agenda, which mm-hmm. is not true. They yeah. are supposed to be absolutely neutral on mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. And so there's always, there's long been this idea that journalism is um, is in the camp of the liberals. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you, <laughs> my belief is that really good and thorough journalism would direct one to be in the camp of liberals because you we tell the story, we ferret out the stories that nobody else tells mm-hmm. about people who are underrepresented, mm-hmm. about people who are making sub-minimum wages and mm-hmm. are barely able to make it, and about, you know, the sums of money that go into election campaigns to keep politicians voting in a certain way that benefits the very wealthy but not the little person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all of that stuff is comes from deep investigation, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and so we do our research and if we come to conclusions afterwards on the editorial page that something is skewed in this system and in the way that Supreme Courts are allowed to regard corporations as people, it's not because we have an inherent bias. It's because that's where the research has led us. Right, 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 right. To believe that. So these people who don't know anything, and quite frankly, I think some of them actually have a vested interest because they have money that they want to protect from, mm-hmm. you know, taxes and all of this stuff. So they have a reason for wanting. And quite fr- I don't know, I'd like to get your opinions sure. on this, but I think that part of the reason that Trump was elected and continues to whatever extent he still has popularity to be popular is because there is a very thinly veiled kind of a racism out there that mm-hmm. has gravitated towards his, you know, the little cues that he sends to people. And I'm not saying that people are inherently racist, but I think that those workers who are struggling, who have lost their jobs, who are no longer unionized, it's very easy to create this narrative that they were stolen by immigrants. Mm-hmm. Those jobs were stolen by immigrants. Yeah. And, you know, that there are these unfettered borders and that everybody is coming here, wants to be on welfare and, you know, take from this state rather than give back and yeah. brain power and in physical labor and all of that. And I think that Trump has been very effective at milking that. I sentiment. think he took advantage of that, um, that uh, nerve or that thought, and he just fueled it with, you know, yep. all this language and then confirmed it and made it uh, real, quote unquote, to them. Exactly. They're like, oh, the president's saying it, so I knew I was right. Exactly. You know, if this is my guy. the president says it, it must be. And they look at him as such a successful white man who's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, had this game show and has this millionaire um, family and uh, company and his name is up on buildings and he's just this uber mm-hmm. American symbol of someone who has made it, has status. I mean, home. this is, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but, but I was young, you know, I was younger, but I remember... Um, that I was like, Donald Trump seems like, I was like, hmm, like, this is like 20 some years ago, right? Yeah. Um, that, you know, he he projects this success. Right, right. And, you know, um, hotels and casinos and you're like, mm-hmm. wow. So you're, mm-hmm. you, you're, your eyes get glossy. You're like, wow. And I remember that feeling about him. I'm like, hmm. And um, I would say, you know, 
that's you know tr I think one thing that I I heard about Trump and that it still sticks with me. I think it was in the Howard Stern show. He said location, 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 mm -hmm. right for businesses. So that I've always had that in my mind. Yeah. But um, but I've evolved as a man, and I've you know I've matured. And then when when you know his his uh, first speech to run for president was that, then I was like, no, there's mm -hmm. no way, you know. So yeah. immediately I was like, okay, I'm I'm. Um, so, but well, not everybody saw yourself. that. I think that people thought that if he's so successful, he can pass some of that success along mm -hmm. to us. That, mm -hmm. you know, if he could do it, he'll help us do it too. Little realizing that he has no interest in anyone <laughs> yes. else but his own yeah. empire, right? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. not looking to make anyone, any poor people or little person into a big person. He's just looking to protect his own do assets. You, do you talk to any, um, or have you um, interviewed any... Um, Trump voters that voted for him that are like not voting for him anymore. Um, yes, I have actually. I've I've interviewed. What do you call them? Reg regret voters. Regretful, like, regretful <laughs> voters. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, there's actually a person. Um, his name is Richard Johnson, who um, was serving in the Iowa legislature for a mm -hmm. long time mm -hmm. as a Republican, and because of Trump, he left the party completely and then got voted out. Of, he became an independent and got mm -hmm. voted out of the legislature. And there are many people like that who say, I didn't sign up for the hate mongering. Right. You know, this is not my set of values. I think a lot of Republicans were just more conservative personally believe that family should be two mm -hmm. parents and two children and a little house, you know, with a picket fence and all mm -hmm. of that, and that it's accessible to everyone, the American dream, if you just work hard. Mm -hmm. And also people who had some assets who didn't want the government taking it away, um, all that kind of thought process, but they did not ever see it going this far in yeah. terms of this kind of demonizing of the other yeah and they're frankly not interested in the government meddling you know in if someone is gay or lesbian what their personal preferences or choices are and those moderate republicans used to be plentiful back in the 80s like robert ray the former mm -hmm. governor who brought so many asian immigrants here refugees mm -hmm. and immigrants here after the vietnam war um, was a, was a friend of mine. He was a wonderful person, and he really had a heart and cared about people, and didn't buy into any of this extremism. But I think the party has just been so dominated by extremists now mm -hmm. that there is no moderate republic. There's no place for a moderate republican to be anymore, which mm -hmm. is why some of them are just leaving the party wholesale, fed up and disgusted with what it. What I think, what I fear, or what is scary to me, is that you know I remember going through you know you are on youtube and it's mm. i think it's called like the youtube hole where you start something you start watching a uh music video and then an hour later you're on <laughs> you're you know still it there. just takes you no it takes you to like some conspiracy stuff oh. like if you just keep watching videos and then i i don't know if youtube still does it but yeah. you just keep on watching and then eventually you're you end up in some kind of conspiracy stuff like it just it just does YouTube it matter what kind of music you're listening to? I don't know. I, I just, wonder it, if it, it's pegged to particular types of music. I don't know, but you know, the, it's that's an interesting question because I remember an hour into YouTube, you're watching about JFK conspiracies and mm. all these conspiracies and all this stuff, and it's just it gets interesting. You just like, oh, and I started watching a Backstreet Boys, you know, <laughs> music video. And now I'm here. Wow. But that was. Eight ten years ago, uh -huh. right? Where conspiracies was kind of like in that 
But now it's in the political forum. Now they're in the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's it's like techno. It was like (laughs) it was not popular. Now you know it's uh, there's raves everywhere and there's you know hundreds of thousands of people go to it. That's what's scary. That is now it's in the mainstream. I know. And I think, you know, it goes back to the educational system. Young people have to learn to think for themselves and be discerning. And mm-hmm. it's on schools to teach them that, to educate them about history mm-hmm. and, you know, how to how to ferret out the truth from the lies because there's so much lies floating, floating around out there. I must say, I mean, this is shifting topics here, but sure. I find the young people who have been out every night protesting with BLM are mm-hmm. just, and they were right outside your office door mm-hmm. last night I was here. Um, they're just so inspiring and they so get it. I mean, mm-hmm. they get the dynamics that are going on. They get what fuels racism, what's behind it. They mm-hmm. get the need to speak up in a popular uprising and they're determined to come out night after night, no matter whether they get arrested mm-hmm. or maligned or lose their jobs, which has happened to so many people. Yeah. They're still there. They're thinking for themselves, going against the grain. And I really salute them. The, the, so there's there's this pushback. And um, we're, would you agree that we're at a tipping point? All right. That was uh, part one with... Rekha Basu, um, again, amazing uh, journalist, uh, um, and uh, I'm really honored that she took time to come and speak with me. So, so yeah, look out for uh, part two. Yeah, part two. Yeah, I don't know why I'm having a hard time. With. Maybe it's I was thinking volume one, volume two, but it's more like a part one, part two. Right. Well, maybe it's because you don't wash your hands. <laughs> Maybe you gotta try washing your fucking hands. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Maybe yeah. Whatever. This is ep- uh, that was uh, episode one of season two. I was. Oh, that sounds. Shit. That sounds cool. Yeah. All right. Look for uh, number two with Rekha Basu. <laughs> 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 <laughs>